Howdy gang, thank you for tuning into Back Country and Barbells. Today's episode brought to you by our partners, Send a Vet. Uh, the Send a Vet Foundation guys um, focus on sending our nation's combat injured warriors on various outdoor adventures throughout the United States and around the world. Guys, we need your help to support that mission. You can do that many ways. Um, volunteer hours, um, donations, um, sending vets their way. All sorts of ways to help the Sendivet Foundation, guys. Um, just go on over to sendivet.org, send-a-vet.org, and um, inquire. And if, if going to that website is too much trouble for you guys, uh, reach out to us. We'd be happy to get your inquiry their way, guys. Um, as a result of their programs, um, many, many wounded warriors, injured combat veterans have... Um, improve their quality of life um, and to continue that mission guys they need your help so check them out and um, let them know that backcountry and barbells sent you guys also one of the folks one of the businesses one of our partners that also helped out send a vet was pr lifting the other show sponsor pr lifting quality fitness gear in the pacific northwest pr lifting takes pride in personal passion for gear excellent customer service and most importantly being the place in the pacific northwest to hook you up with the quality gear to help you achieve your next personal record guys um, if you follow my instagram feed um, at the coach joe um, you'll see me swinging and working with a bunch of their kettlebells um, jeremy has their sandbag jump rope some super bands guys if you're looking to buy great gear one time um, pr lifting has the best stuff um, check them out guys and as mentioned many times if you live between or in the Pacific Northwest um, great shipping options I know I've gotten free shipping on very small orders um, inquire with Anthony and the gang about that over at PR lifting and check them out PRlifting.com. Um, also guys the last group to check out our own website, backcountryandparbells.com. Please, guys, uh, share the episodes, review the episodes, check out our website, guys. We have some programming options like the base camp program on our homepage, guys. Um, if you're looking to start your home training, um, do it with base camp. Um, we give you program recommendations. We give you equipment recommendations, and um, we vary up that training with some strength and some capacity building, along with um, great ways to open and close those workouts. Um, great stuff to start a base. So check it out, backcountryandbarbells.com. Um, that's it. Today's episode, guys, um, features a, a sort of hunting legend. Um, Dennis Dunn joins the show. Um, Dennis Dunn uh, joined the Pope and Young Club in 1972, and since then, um, old boy has been on a 40-year odyssey um, where he actually has completed what would be called the North American Super Slam, where he's taken all 28 huntable big game animals recognized by Pope and Young. Um, and he's done it. So, and right now, actually, Dennis is, is on a mission. Um, he's got one more species to get. I guess that's the, um, the bison. Um, he's right now in Arizona, um, ponied up big bucks for that opportunity. And we talk about that in the episode. So, um, he's done this on traditional gear. Um, he's talked a lot 
We talk a lot about um, uh, predator politics. Uh, we talk a lot about uh, politics in general. Uh, Dennis is very opinionated. Um, Dennis is a great interview, and he's got some great stories. Um, but I think the greatest thing that you will hear involves porcupines and lovemaking. So if that intrigues you enough, uh, continue to listen, guys, and um, enjoy the show. There's a lot in here to hopefully get you guys training, hunting, and living best life possible thanks a bunch guys have a good one howdy gang back country and barbells joe shamanic jeremy day and special guest today dennis dunn fellas how we doing good good thank you um for having a great day and this interview is going to make it even better <laughs> oh yeah well <laughs> let's let's see if you feel the same way afterwards dennis but um uh, we'll do our best <laughs> we'll do our best to make sure that happens but um no it's fired up to um fired up everybody uh dennis you, you have a long history um in the hunting game and um uh, as a guy who's trying to figure out this uh this bow hunting gig um and being being led by jeremy here and then having your experience i'm, I'm super excited for this interview uh, I, I had a couple titles to throw your way and uh let me see if if you appreciate the order here so i was looking at your bio and i was gonna go husband father hunter author conservationist now d- d- did i miss anything in there or, or would, I, would you reorder those things i mean how, how does that feel well, that feels pretty good. Somewhere in there, near the top of the list, there should be Christian. I'm okay. Also, a, I'm well. also a believing Christian, and uh, and uh, Christ is a part of my life, uh, much more so in recent years when I was a young kid growing up. But uh, at any rate, um, I consider my role as husband uh, probably uh, most important in my life uh, now that my kids are raised. But I'm also a grandparent and uh, have six grandkids, one of my two sons. I have no daughters, is a hunting outfitter in Idaho, and I guess I did my job well at uh, introducing him to Mother Nature and his brother at an early age, because they're both avid hunters and fishermen, and and as soon as he got out of college, Brian couldn't wait to move to Sun Valley, Idaho, where his mother and I had taken him on a lot of vacations, so he could uh, uh, fish all spring and summer, and hunt all fall, and ski all winter, and for seven years he lived in complete poverty, uh, doing all those things, until he found a way to make a living doing all those things, and now that he's about to turn uh, 50 uh, this year, why uh, um, he uh, he hunts all spring and excuse me, he fishes all spring and summer, hunts all falls, he's all winter, he gets paid for it, and he he owns Sun Valley Outfitters and he takes international fly fishermen all all over the world to countries like Bhutan and Fiji and Thailand and and um, um, the Turks and Caicos Islands for uh, international. Fly fishing, sport water—I mean, salt water as well as uh, freshwater sport fishing. Well, as a um, as a as a dad, uh, as a daddy myself with uh, three kiddos, eight, five, and four—excuse me, eight, six, and four—it's um, hard to imagine having a fifty-year-old kiddo. Um, but uh, it sounds like you're you're unbelievably proud of him. But uh, I, to, to to stick on a point that I think super interesting, that we were talking about pre-show this this introduction to hunting. Um, you've done a great job introducing your sons into the game, but but I think people would be surprised to realize who actually inspired you to even get into hunting. Do you mind sharing that a little bit? No, not at all. Uh, I had no hunters in my family at all to mentor me into hunting. Um, my mother remarried when I was eight after divorcing my father, and uh, he had he had been a hunter, but I was too young 
you know, when they split up for me to really get introduced to hunting by my biological father. And my stepfather had been raised in Wallace, Idaho, and had had all kinds of fishing available to him, but never got into hunting, and he wasn't interested in it. And and uh, just so happened, though, that my mother had taken archery at Stanford University as her athletic activity. And when I was five years old, she uh, one day brought home a toy set of bow and arrows from Bartell's drugstore with rubber cups on the ends of the arrows and and uh, a concentric ring target that came with the toy bow set. And she glued that on the bathroom door at the end of the hallway and said, if I closed all the other doors in the hallway, I could shoot down the the length of that uh, uh, to the target. And so um, I came, became fascinated with, with that, with a real primitive kind of toy set of bow and arrows. And then uh, a year or two later, at age seven, I went off to summer camp where they had real bows and arrows with steel tips on the ends, and I could shoot back to 20 yards. And <laughs> then I got pretty addicted to archery, and I couldn't wait to till um, I was old enough to drive so I could drive to eastern Washington where I thought the deer lived. And I didn't know that we had Columbia blacktail deer and the thick <laughs> vegetation all around us in western Washington. <laughs> but uh, from then on, um, though I didn't take my first big game animal with a bow till I was out of college uh, at age 24, uh, I had uh, I didn't do much hunting, if at all, in, in college. But once I was out of college, then I started hunting uh, seriously and uh, from 1964 on, I was born in 1940. Uh, I, I probably took uh, a game animal almost every year since then, and some some years as many as four or five animals. And so, it's become a lifelong passion, and uh, it eventually led to me my becoming an outdoor writer, and then finally an author. And when I finished up the Super Slam uh, Bearbo in 19, in 2004, I began to write a book about it, which turned out to take me four years, uh, averaging 12 hours a day, and. That's a 10-pound coffee table book you don't want to drop on your foot because uh, <laughs> it's, it's pretty heavy, but it's... Uh, well, it's Jeremy, um, yeah, I was gonna, not to interrupt you, Dennis, but Jeremy actually has that book in his living room, and I've heard from his wife many times that it's it's not one that you either... Not only do you not want to drop it on your foot, it, it's even tough to lug up the steps. I mean, it, it's, it's... Yeah, sure. <laughs> and, you know, it's so doggone heavy that nobody would ever think of taking it up into a tree stand with him to help pass the time of day while they're waiting for the game to come along. Um, you can't even take it to bed to read with you. It's so heavy and uncomfortable. And you're certainly not going to carry on to an airplane. So in 012, four years after the book came out in the fall of 08 on National Hunting and Fishing Day, I, I converted it to a seven-volume digital series of e-books that are available for chump change on Amazon. And um, and uh, that book actually went on to win six national awards. And even the e-book series won the, the uh, award for the best... Um, um, the the best book of the year uh, in the overly broad category. The only one I could enter it into was um, sports, sports, fitness, and recreation, oh, and cool. um, and it won the uh, the top national award there that year. But I think the only reason it did is because uh, there are no pictures in that book of of me and any dead animals at the recovery site. I wanted to create a book almost as enjoyable for the non-hunting public as the hunting public, particularly since the non-hunters, as opposed to the anti-hunters, are make up about 77% of the electorate, and they're going to determine our fate as hunters at the ballot box, whether we like it or not, sooner or later, I'm afraid. So that's why I wrote the book the way I did. It's uh, it's 50% a fine art book, illustrated by two of the best wildlife artists in the country, Hayden and Dallin Lampson did the artwork, a uh, father and a son from Pocatello, Idaho. And the artwork dominates that book from one end to the other, but it also contains 
104 stories of adventure and misadventure. Well, Dennis, if, if you don't mind, can we? Can I ask you a question about the about the the, the, the your choice in picturing the animals and 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 making sure. that effort to? Be, well, because you, you see, you know, I'm coming into hunting in this social media age, right? And 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 me and Jeremy were talking, and you know, I I actually put down a turkey this year. I was excited to do it, and but I'm pretty wary no. of. I, I'm I've never been a fan, to be honest with you, coming into new. I've not been a fan of like. On social media, the 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 postings of of grip and grin photos is something to me that I I don't I don't say that I judge folks who do it, but to me it's just something that I don't see myself doing in the sense where I'll post it out and make it public. I, I don't know I don't know if my in my mind that 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 sits I, I don't know if it pays the proper respect to the animal to 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 kind of put that kind of posting all over the place if that makes any sense i'm trying to i'm trying to put that in a nice way where it's not a i guess from a libertarian sense like you talked about in the beginning sense like it doesn't bother me that other folks do it but it's just not a route that i'd like to go but the sediment that you just brought up that for non-hunters those types of images can be tough to to do it is that a is that a conscious decision i think i think that's an accurate assessment I, I have found that the non-hunters, which constitute more than three-quarters of the electorate, yeah. they're not anti-hunting per se. They're just ambivalent about hunting and don't choose to hunt themselves. But most of them, the vast majority of them, realize that hunting does play uh, a very significant role in wildlife conservation. So the only the only people that enjoy looking at trophy photos of a, of a, of a, a skookum animal uh, on the ground with a hunter uh, uh, right behind it or right next to it um, are, um, are other hunters, you know. And I myself am kind of offended by the – in fact, I am offended by – if you see a hunter sitting on top of his animal to stride it or something like that, sure. you know. Yeah, it, I agree. That, that kind of image of dominance and, and you know, when I am fortunate enough to take a big game animal with my bow, I'm overcome by two competing uh, emotions. One is a tremendous sense of humility, and the other is a tremendous sense of gratitude. Mm. A gratitude to the good Lord for having um, favored me with a successful hunt, and uh, and humility as well, and a reverence for that, that animal. But, you know, the Bible does give man dominion over beasts, over animals, but it's all a question of how you use them. If you use them wisely and, you know, for your use, for food, for, for meat and whatnot, um, for your family or your friends or to give to charity, uh, and a lot of game, wild uh, uh, game meat is given to charity by hunters, uh, that's, uh, that's a proper uh, use and, and I think definitely uh, condoned by, uh, by uh, uh, even the Bible. But if you exploit the resource. That's when everybody frowns, including the Almighty. And um, a lot of hunters do give hunting a bad name because they don't comport themselves in a sportsmanlike manner. I mean, the, the whole essence of the hunt is the challenge you impose upon yourself, the ethics you personally adopt. Um, and as Glenn St. Charles and others have said, uh, you know, uh, um, you you display your ethics in the woods or in the field not when nobody else is looking when you could do or all kinds of things including illegal things or things that are are not ethical or maybe in the gray area but if you choose to uh, 
respect all the game laws, and if you choose not to take advantage of a, an animal that's, uh, that's you know is trapped in in snow or or uh, mired down in the muck or is is somehow or behind a, a fence or something and can't uh, run away, if you're not willing to hunt and, or kill under those conditions, then you've elevated uh, your status uh, just by showing your reverence for the wild creatures that. Uh, the good Lord put on this planet along with us. No, and um, yeah. I, I would agree. And Jeremy, like you said, like I, I, I like the, I love having, I love remembering the situation. So to sit here and say that I haven't taken photos with my animals is, is, it would be completely wrong. And and even Jeremy, I mean, Jeremy, Jeremy helped me call. Jeremy called the turkey in, guided me through it. It was a great experience. And but I love the idea too. I, I think a use for me and Jeremy, you can speak on this. Is something that's drawn me into hunting more than anything in terms of another use is this idea of also fellowship. Like the it's it's great memories and to bring in that reverence for the animal also speaks to it. Jeremy, I mean, uh, y- your thoughts on that idea as well. I mean, this this idea of you know the ethics that Dennis brings into it. Yeah, I agree. I mean. Um... When you got the camaraderie, you're with all your buddies, you're working together and you're all coming to the, you know, the end cause or end result is to harvest an animal and work together as a team. That's kind of how, you know, to go on to Dennis's biblical terms or whatever, it, it states in the Bible that we have to come together as a community. And when we do come together as a community, we're, you know, success will be become of you. So you know, when you're out there with your fellow foe and you're hunting and um, just walking around working together, you're going to increase your odds. And yeah, I, 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 that's, that's one of the reasons why I love elk hunting. I'm not a solo hunter. I, I never have been. I can go out on a day here or a day there, but when it comes to a hunting camp or five or 10 days, I like to enjoy it with other people. Fair enough. And and with that, you kind of mentor each other through the whole process, right? I, there's sure a lot to that. And, and granted, um, you know, you, you can't hunt uh, during illegal hunting hours. At night, you can't hunt, uh, except in Alaska, where you can hunt 24-7 as long as you don't <laughs> use artificial lights, you know. Uh, um, but you're so far north there that during most of the, at least during the hunting season, uh um, sometimes you have shooting light 24 hours a day, depending on how far north you are. But in most situations, you come back to camp at the end of a day's hunt, and you you build a campfire, and you you have fix something to eat, and you sit around the campfire, swapping the day's experiences, and or telling stories of past hunts, and and that camaraderie is without a doubt one of the the most uh, enjoyable and 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 special things about um, the hunting the hunting experience. But on the other hand, it is basically a contest between you and mother nature mm-hmm. um you're choosing to insert yourself into the uh, the the, the prey predator drama as a predator but if you spend enough time in the wild country you occasionally find the tables turned on you and f- discover that you're a prey animal being preyed upon by a predator i mean i've been stalked by cougars i've been charged twice by grizzlies by once by a muskox once by a moose and you're not always safe out there, and sometimes you take your life in your hands without even realizing you are. Mother Nature can throw you all kinds of nasty curves. Uh, uh, you know, you can leave camp one morning uh, and um, manage to make it across a little river behind camp, and then a, a monsoon comes in, and you can't get back to camp that night. The, <laughs> wolves, are, 
the creeks become a raging torrent and you have no way to get across. A lot of times you have to spend the night out in the, in the bush without having um, uh, fully prepared for it, and uh, you hope you have taken enough survival gear with you to, to um, make it through till morning and, and not freeze your, your tail off um, or die of exposure. And there's all kinds of things, you know. You can practically sta- knock your, you can poke your eye out with a sharp stick trying to make your way back through the bushwhacking back to camp at night and uh, <laughs> you know all kinds of near near misses or near near uh, uh um uh what's the right one where you have uh um uh, near death experiences that's what i'm trying to say uh, <laughs> well i i was, I was saying I, I haven't um i haven't had a near death experience yet but a, a close call i don't know joe you fell pretty good there last year <laughs> yeah. off a few logs right yeah. i mean it was no you're right if you weren't as, as fit as you were i'm, I'm sure that could have ended it, in in a serious situation yeah jeremy's cousin well, led me into a, a blowdown forest and that, that was creepy but i was gonna the uh, a spot that really had me haired up was um i was on a late season elk hunt with some friends last year and I thought I was alone in the woods, and all of a sudden, when I'm trailing, I come back the way I came, and there was a big pile of warm um, cougar scat that um, had me thinking twice and looking up for the rest of the afternoon. So, so Dennis, can can do you want to go into some specifics about this this cougar stalking that 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 had you had you kind of sideways? I'm interested. In well, that. that's a, that's a critter yeah, that freaks me I'll, out. I'll scares follow me a up bit. with an even scarier story of a dear friend of mine who. Uh, uh, came with an ass eyelash of being uh, nailed by a cougar. Um, only by the grace of God and his quick wits did he avoid being uh, exterminated by uh, that predator. But I was on my way. Um, uh, buddy and I um, took off after school. We were both school teachers at the time, and we took off on Friday afternoon as soon as school got out to try and get in before dark to a little lake up in the North Cascades. We'd been into it before, but there's no trail. We had to bushwhack our way in, and we there was a fire trail that went up this ridge the ways that got us part way in, and then we got up into where some early snows had had, had uh, already landed there in October in the North Cascades, and and um, we got uh, we got uh, uh, just barely made it to the lake, but we had to go down some cliffs to get to the lake, and uh, it was kind of hairy, but we managed to get down there in time to set up a tent where we'd camped once before. And then the next day, we, 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 uh, when we went out of there, the next day we were only in there for, to catch a, a bunch of fish and leave the next day. And we climbed back up those cliffs, and on the snowy slope that led up to the cliffs, here are some fresh cougar tracks right on top of our human tracks that we mm-hmm. left the night before. <laughs> and uh, that cougar followed us to the edge of the cliff, and then he didn't go down over the cliff for some reason. But it, it made us realize we had been stalked, and we didn't have a firearm, either one of us. Uh, that same friend of mine had an experience once at a high lake in the North Cascades where he bushwhacked his way in with a little rubber raft, a little one-man rubber raft. And he was out there fishing in, uh, towards evening, and all of a sudden this black bear shows up on the, on the shore of the lake. And as he paddles around the lake fishing, the bear is following him along the edge of the shore. <laughs> Hmm. And uh, this puts the fear of God into him, and he thinks, my gosh, uh, um, you know, do I dare put ashore uh, uh, and and uh, take my chances with that bear there? And the bear wouldn't leave him alone. And the bear was acting uh, really strange. And, and, in fact, my friend came to the conclusion that he had been feeding on uh, fermented huckleberries. There were th- huckleberries were thick in the slopes all around this lake. 
and that bear had been in there feeding on them, and there had been some frost that uh, fall already. This was, again, in uh, in, uh, late fall, the last possible fishing you could do up in the high country. And and this bear, I think, was was loopy on those fermented huckleberries. (laughs) And uh, my... uh, my 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 friend had taken a pistol with him in there, and when he tried to put ashore, that bear came for him. And uh, with that, he didn't try and shoot the bear, but he fired into the ground in front of the bear and discouraged it. And the bear finally went running off into the woods. But he spent the night out in his rubber raft in the middle of the lake because he was <laughs> scared to try. Oh my. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you can have all kinds of unexpected experiences in the wilderness, and uh, the more time you spend out hunting, and, and, and hunting by and large is, you know, you talk about it being a, a sport of friends and comrades and the great camaraderie that goes with hunting, and I don't disagree with any of that, but by and large what it really comes down to is you and Mother Nature, and yeah. I prefer to hunt, though I, though I have hunted, I've done more elk hunting with a buddy, uh, or in some cases a guide, because during the rut is, of course, your best chance of being able to get within bull range uh, of, a, of a bull, especially if you hunt with a stick bow the way I do. Um, you've got to get pretty darn close. And uh, it, it, generally speaking, you know, you can cow call yourself. Uh, you can use a grunt tube. You can often call them in. The, the advantage to having a buddy with you is that um, you can set up in front of your buddy, and the the bull may come in only so far. In fact, the bull will usually come only as far as he can come to the point where his eyes are unable to see what his ears are telling him he ought to be able to see. Hmm. And usually they'll hang up at that point and not come any further if their eyes are not giving them evidence as to what, they're, what it is they're hearing and they think they ought to be able to see it. So um, that's the biggest reason to hunt uh, moose or elk with uh, hunting buddy, but aside from that, I much prefer spot and stock hunting, and that's a solo operation where the fewer people you have, the better, because two people cannot move as quietly as one. You have twice as much chance of being seen. If you're trying to do it with a cameraman behind you, there's three or four times as much chance that something's going to screw up the stock. And uh, I'd much rather be out uh, alone by myself in the woods, just me and an, an animal that I've spotted, trying to. Uh, outsmarter to get up on than to have somebody else with me. Uh, and then I like to come back to camp and, and share the adventures with my hunting buddy who's gone off in a different direction and has his own set of adventures to, to tell about once we're back in camp. That's the kind of hunting I've enjoyed the most. So with so I want to stick on the the predator topic and I, I love the yeah. I love the elk insight, but um the the predator the predator hunting um it intrigues me for a couple of reasons. One, uh, Jeremy and I are trying to put together a, a bear hunt in Idaho uh, for, for August, and we're working the details about that out. But then also, when I bring up bear hunting, or I bring up, man, I'd like to try cougar. I've heard that that's delicious. It's got. A, I've heard from folks that there's a pork thing to it. Or anytime I bring up this idea of, man, I'd like to get after a predator, I get, a, I get a, I get a much more of a sideways look from folks who aren't into hunting than I would if I did discuss elk or deer or, or, you know, even something like a squirrel, in your opinion, being in the hunting game so long, Dennis, is that something that, that, that that's an interesting conversation for you? Or, or do you have any opinions about why, why there's a different feel from folks outside of hunting? Yeah. What is that, sir? Well, that's a great question. And there's a lot of parts to the answer to it. First of all, 
much like the polar bear, the cougar has become an icon of vanish of the vanishing wilderness. And the left, the political left, has seized upon it and also the polar bear to um, uh, launch a very well-oiled, well-coordinated campaign. And uh, the radical animal rights activists have uh, become a big part of this. Um, and that, you know, their 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 hidden agenda is to uh, uh, find a way to get around the Second Amendment so that eventually they can get uh, uh, the public to rise up and demand that uh, firearm ownership be outlawed by the private citizen. And they're going to have a hard time overcoming that, that since it's a part of our U.S. Constitution. But the back door by which they hope to arrive at their goal is to um, get hunting outlawed because the single biggest reason that most people own guns is so they can hunt. Well, the campaign against hunting in general is one that's taking place on a thousand fronts. And if you're familiar with the line from Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, a death by a thousand cuts, Mm. um, that's how Julius Caesar died. He didn't die from one stab wound through the heart, but he was hacked to pieces with all kinds of cuts. And and, uh, so the antis are going after hunting by targeting a specific game uh, species in a specific state, uh, three decades ago, they got cougar hunting outlawed in uh, in uh, California, and um, and uh, now in most states you can't even use hounds to hunt cougars, or at least in a lot of states. But the fact of the matter is that um, 99.99% of all uh, lions or, or cats taken, um, like lynx or bobcat or cougar, they're all taken with almost all of them with hounds in well, pursuit. It's a, not, it's not a to- time-honored... I was going to say, and an interesting thing, too, that I've heard, not to interrupt you, was even in, in, a, in a state like California where they don't hunt cougars, you see that most of them are either being killed um, on the highway because their habitats have been um, kind of uh, gerrymandered, for lack of a better word, but then also when, when they do get out of hand, they have to go pay state people yeah. to, to go call them. There's a lot more to it than that. Yeah. There's a lot more to it than that. Uh, you, women joggers are being nailed by cougars on the uh, on the outskirts of the suburbs of L.A. and, sure. and all kinds of pets and, and, and even little kids uh, are being attacked. And the main reason is the cougar have lost their fear of man mm. because they haven't been hunted in, 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 in uh, states like California for so long. And they, they can't even be pursued with hounds even for chase. You know, there's some states that allow pursuit of, of a mountain lion with dogs, but you just can't kill them. So the, the, the houndsmen can use their dogs and find a fresh check, put their dogs on the cougar track, and eventually tree the animal. But then they have to leave the animal in the tree. And, and, uh, and, uh, but, but you see, when the, when the cougars aren't even allowed to be chased by hounds anymore, they lose their fear of man. And so they become bolder and bolder. And if, if, if there's not uh, plenty of deer around, then they start uh, encroaching on civilization. And, and uh, just, as just as bears do, bears are notorious for invading man's space, especially if, if shoot, they're, they're normal uh, food sources in short supply. But um, the cougars are uh, incredibly uh, wary of man generally. But as uh, they've had more and more contact with man without having uh, b- been pursued or, or hunted by man, they become bolder and bolder and bolder, and then they end up acting like bears in many cases. Now, I was about to tell you earlier a, a story that happened to my good friend who was a wildlife photographer. He was in uh, the Olympic National Forest one day filming Roosevelt elk, 
and he had a bull about 60 yards in front of him in the ferns uh, in, the, in the rainforest there with a bunch of cows around him. And he, it was a rainy day. He had his rain gear on, and he had this this um, expensive camera mounted on top of a of a tall tripod. He had the legs extended, and so he was able to stand behind the tripod and do his photography. And he had his eye to the lens and was filming this bull elk when he heard this strange sound behind him. Mm. And it was so out of place, he didn't take his hands off the, the top of the tripod or, or his camera that he was holding in his hands. It was, it was screwed to the top of the tripod. But he turned his head and looked over his shoulder just in time to see a cougar airborne mm. who would just jump off a bank behind him who was about to take him to the ground. <laughs> oh, man. And he only had time Could not imagine. to spin around with his, tri- his tripod, the, the camera in hand and the long legs of the tripod were still uh, against the ground, but he interposed that camera uh, between himself and the chest of the cougar. And uh, so the cougar got dealt a pretty stout blow to his chest with a, a metal object there, and it discombobulated the cougar enough so that uh, even though it knocked Chuck to the ground from the force of the of the uh, the rush, the attack, the cougar kept right on going and didn't come back to finish him off. But, boy, he came within a Nance eyelash of losing his, his, mm. his life. And uh, this happened about 10 years after they made it illegal to use hounds for hunting cougars in the state of Washington. Well, and the thing you're finding out now, too, is they're starting to get overpopulation, right? They're, they're getting... They're, exactly. They're, tr- they're competing for territory. And the and ones that don't get territory, food. especially the toms... They're getting mingy, they're getting hungry, and they're going to attack and get whatever they moving object they can to survive in the wild. And oh, that's, that's why we're right. getting a rise in attacks. And, I mean, Oregon, I think, last year had two kills and then um, one mountain bike rider here last year in the state of Washington. Oh, so, yeah. And it's only going to get worse and worse. It is getting worse and worse. You're right. And one thing that the non-hunter doesn't understand about, about cougars uh, that even when you hunt them with hounds, they're incredibly uh, smart and ingenious in, in the art of, of escape. Um, I'll tell you two stories from my personal cougar hunting experiences that really make that point in spades. I have been on many, many cougar hunts, but only about half of them have I ever, or only about a third of them have I ever ended up underneath a tree uh, with a cougar in the tree. Um, and I chose to let a couple of those stay there because they weren't the, the old trophy Tom that I was looking for. I mean, I, I am a trophy hunter in the sense that I turn down everything else that's, that's less than what I'm looking for. I'm only looking for an animal near the end of its life that's already passed its prime breeding season and pre, uh, time for passing its genes on to the next generation. Uh, and for me, um, by restricting my goals to such a level as an animal in, near the end of its life, I, I realize I'm, I'm uh, condemning myself, so to speak, to returning empty-handed for most of my hunts. But that's the challenge that I enjoy. I put limitations on myself because of the weapons I choose. Uh, for the last 14 years, I have only hunted with uh, uh, recurves or long bows or self-bows. I, I did hunt half my lifetime with a, a compound, but even when I did, I never hunted with sights. always purely instinctive shooting. But um, I'll tell you these two experiences I'll never forget, cougar hunting, that and educated me as to how very much of a challenge it still is to take a mature tom with, with dogs. In this one case, 
the dogs were a couple of miles ahead of us, and they finally treated treat this 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 Tom. Uh, the, the, your houndsmen don't even put the dog t- turn the dogs loose unless they find a big track where they know it's a a male instead of a female. Um, and in some states, it's not even legal to take a female lion, which I approve of. Uh, but the males are something else again. Like bears, every male kills several cubs or kittens um, every year. They're not monogamous. They breed as many females as they can during the breeding season. And if they kill a, a small one, they don't a baby, uh, a cub or kitten, they don't know if it's their own offspring or not, do they, nor do they care. But, what, in fact, every every male bear and male lion will kill every smaller male they can catch in order to eliminate competition for food sources uh, or for breeding rights. But in the case of this first uh, story I was about to tell you, we finally got under the tree, uh, the, once the tr- animals treed, the barking of the hounds changes to an altogether, altogether different kind of, of barking, and the houndsmen know from a distance whether the animals treed or not, just from the sound the dogs are making. The, the barking of the chase itself, while the chase is going on, is one thing, but treed is a totally different sound. So we got to the tree, and the dogs are all at the base of the tree, barking their heads off, looking up into the tree. But we go around the tree, and we can't find the cat up there. It, it just doesn't seem to be anywhere in the tree, but the dogs are convinced it is. We were about to give up and, and figure somehow to escape when at 90 degrees from the trunk of the tree, from where his last tracks were, that running cat, when he left the ground about 30 feet off, off from the base of the tree and landed, 15 or 20 feet up in the tree, he used the trunk of the tree as a backboard and rebounded off it at a 90-degree angle. Mm. And and 20 yards up the slope at 90 degrees from his approach were the tracks where he landed. And the dogs never <laughs> figured out that he did that. They were convinced he was in that tree. <laughs> that is wild. They're, uh, they're, they're unbelievable critters, and... and the 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 superpowers that they have for for lack of a better word are they're amazing they're sleek they're quiet they That's true. They, they seem to be now, let me tell you quickly, the second story because yeah. it's just as remarkable as the first one uh we were in heavy fresh snow and um it was a lot for the dogs to plow through uh, but uh, they they eventually uh, um uh, made uh, headway on this cougar and a hot chase was going and and we could hear the dogs barking, but they weren't barking treed, but they were still barking. We finally caught up with them, and here the dogs are all hung up on the edge of a cliff. And there's a rim rock there that extends for about half a mile uh, in, in each direction. And it's at least 25 or 30 feet straight down uh, to the snow. And that cougar had run and jumped right off the edge of that cliff and landed out there about 30 yards in the deep snow and kept right on going. And the, and the dogs couldn't follow him. I'll be damned. Well, so so <laughs> how how what's the hunter's chance? I mean, because here's the, I go back to a point that you made, Dennis, earlier was that you know I think there's a misconception from anybody who hasn't tried hunting, even myself before I got into it. My buddy invited my buddy invited me hunting on my first hunt five years ago in Vermont, and I said, "All right, I can't wait to to get a critter down." And you know, I got my first one down just you know a few weeks ago with Jeremy. So I, there's a misconception that that man hunters it's easy for them. Like, it's just, it's a gimme that you're going to go out in the woods and you're going to harvest something. And then, but even from this aspect, when, when you're talking about dogs and cougars and, and trying to get them in, I mean, the, the, the challenge is unbelievable. So in, in, in your mind, what's the hunter's chance to go after these, 
these these apex predators like bears, you know, black bear, grizzly, cougar, you know, even now as 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 wolf populations boom, even th- they're starting to come back onto the radar for for hunters to get seasons on. But what what is the hunter's chance on their on their own instincts when it when it's human versus these apex predators? I mean, do, do we well, really have a chance? It, first of all, the dawn hunter doesn't realize how much work hunting is. Hunting is a lot yeah. of work. And we can speak of it in terms of it being fun when you, when you make a stalk and it almost works out and somehow you blow the stalk or the animal gets smart and, and runs off, you know. It, just getting within 50 yards or less of a trophy-quality animal without being detected, that is, that is great fun and that's a great challenge in and of itself. That doesn't mean you're going to get a shot if you're a bull hunter because usually 50 yards is not close enough to get the job done, especially if you hunt with a stick bow like myself. But um, nonetheless, just having that close-in experience with a, uh, with a mature uh, big-game animal whose senses of sight, uh, hearing, and smell are infinitely keener than your own. And, of course, if you're hunting mountain game, they get around on four legs in, in that mountain country uh, 100 times more easily than you do on two legs. And mm. so all the odds are in favor of the animal, um, with the exception of... Uh, um, man's brain that is capable of some calculation of some thinking uh, rather than just acting on instinct but i'll tell you the instincts of wild animals far make far outstrip our brain power most of the time and uh, what i have found is that the difference between a successful bow hunter and an unsuccessful one is can be summed up in one word patience <laughs> if you're not patient if you're not willing to spend an hour two or three on a stock or to get within 50 yards of your quarry and still spend an hour undetected waiting for that animal to feed in your direction or waiting for that animal to get up from its bed and to offer you a shot through a narrow shooting lane or something like that, or waiting for the wind to change direction slightly so that you can eventually take advantage of the sound cover that sometimes the breeze will give you and, and crawl in closer, you know. I mean, that, those are the challenges of, of hunting big game with a bow. And... Uh, to be part of Mother Nature's prey predator drama is, to me, the ultimate excitement that is possible to to experience in this in this universe. Because almost all the odds are stacked uh, in 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 favor of your quarry, not you, if you're a bow hunter. And now that you talk though about uh, um, equipment choices, uh, you know archery has become so sophisticated in recent years that. A lot of bow hunters who uh, practice regularly at 80 yards with uh, um, yardy sight pins or with a scope and uh, with trigger releases and whatnot, I have some friends, and you probably do too, who can routinely hit a grapefruit at 80 yards, even a, a pop can at 100 yards. You know, that's no longer a primitive weapon compared to what we used to think of as primitive weapons. Sure. Um, and I know that uh, an awful lot of, of um, hunters, bow hunters who used to hunt with with compounds are come, turning to traditional archery just because they want to increase the challenge for themselves. And they now consider it, now that they've learned the skills of hunting, they consider it not uh, uh, nearly as much of a challenge as they would like it to be. So 
they're uh, willingly um, hanging up their compound for good. And, of course, I, 14 years ago, I went back to my roots because I had taken seven of Washington State's big game animals with my stick boats before the compound was ever invented. Mm. And then I got seduced by the compound for a number of years. Uh, I hunted primarily with the compound, not exclusively, but more often than not, I'd go out into the field with the compound. And, and I, I loved the fact that I could get faster aeroflight flight and a flatter trajectory, and I could hold it full draw if I needed too longer than... I could with a stick bow, where if you don't release the arrow within five or ten seconds, you start to shake, you know. And, <laughs> um, but with a compound, sometimes you could hold for a minute if you had to for the animal to take that one last step to, into your shooting lane. And But anyway, I get a lot more personal pleasure hunting with a stick bow, and I make no bones about it. Uh, it's my Everybody has their own thing and does it the way they want to do it. But for me, it's the ultimate challenge is to severely handicap myself with my choice of weapons and the type of animal I'm willing to settle for. And if I don't have success, uh, but once every few years, that's, that's, uh, I'm still happy. I'm enjoying the sport I love um, and enjoying nature to the fullest. And when you time, spend a lot of time out there in the bush, you end up seeing things in Mother Nature that uh, you wonder if anybody else has ever even experienced or witnessed. Uh, I, I can think of two uh, that I've uh, seen that I wonder if anybody's ever seen before. I mean... Uh, have you ever seen two porcupines making love? I have. <laughs> well, well, that's why. I mean, that's my my wife made me shave my beard. So you know, it, 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 just, so that's that's about as close as I've gotten on that. But uh, but <laughs> before before if, I could, if I could tell you one more quick oh, yeah. story, my former wife was a bow huntress, and I met her at a Pope and Young uh, convention many years ago, and that marriage only lasted about four and a half years. But we made a doll sheep hunt together, my first hunt up north, and in the, uh, I think it was my first time north of the border, uh, actually, uh, and uh, the day I killed my ram, uh, my guide and I went off in one direction from our, our camp that was based in a saddle between two peaks on the backbone of the Liard Mountain Range in the Northwest Territories, and she and her guide went off in the other direction to uh, the, the next peak in the chain, and uh, though she didn't get a shot that day, when they got close to the summit of that peak, they came around a rocky rampart and and found this uh, bench pretty much flat, leading about 60 yards to the base of the final rock cone summit of the peak. And on that bench, there were about a dozen sheep, mm. uh, doll sheep, and they were all in a circle. They were all used in immature rams, and they were all in a circle, bouncing up and down like pogo sticks on their hind legs, flailing with their front legs. And in the middle of that circle of ewes and immature rams, was a ewe with all four legs on the ground, and hiding under her belly was a uh, a little lamb, and with a seven-foot wingspan hovering over that la- that ewe, trying to snatch that lamb, was a golden eagle. Oh, wow. And the entire band of sheep were trying to ward off that eagle to protect that baby lamb. And can you imagine seeing that with your own eyeballs? No, <laughs> that's amazing. No, I mean, I'll, <laughs> I'll marvel at you know at, we were we were out in Everett for the Tulip Festival you know this year, and I was marveling over just watching. There was an eagle and a hawk getting after it in the air. I mean, it's it's so cool when you can just slow down and and just appreciate what's around you rather than trying to distract yourself with with the dang phone, which, which so many people seem to spend time doing. Um, but, uh, so, so I'm with you. I mean, just to get out there and sort things out, but, but Dennis, as, as you get out there and sort things out, you, you keep bringing up the fact that you're a recurve guy and, and you're, um, 
you love to go out there with your stick bow and, and your traditional gear. And, you know, as I finished reading up one of your articles, I, I, I love how you make the equipment notes. And as I was reading through your equipment notes, I jotted down this question about the ethics of practice and critter. And and for, for, for you, how do you make that equation where you draw this line between fair chase, fun, and ethics. Is is it is a is it a simple mix of like equipment, practice, and, and the critter? I mean, because it, it's different for everybody, right? So how, how do you how do you do it the right way? Because I can tell you, you know, I'm not as fun as it might be to go out there and try and put an elk down with a spear. Right now, it just wouldn't be ethical for me to do. I, I'm not trained up for it. So so in your yeah, mind, how, yeah, how do you do that? Your point's well taken, and it has everything to do with what choices you make in the field. I mean, you have to be self-disciplined. You have to tell yourself, now that's not a, a high percentage chance shot. I'm not going to take a shot there that where there's a 50-50 chance or even a 20 sure. percent uh, chance that I'm just likely to wound the animal. Uh, you want to make the odds very high in your favor uh, of making a quick, clean, killing shot. Otherwise, the shot is really not one I would consider ethical. But, um, you know, you have to know your equipment. You have to know what you can do. And that means you have to practice a lot and, and know what you feel comfortable with. And that isn't to say that the perfectly aimed arrow released at just the wrong moment as the, as the animal starts into motion isn't going to hit someplace else other than where you intended it for it to hit. Sure. But an, an arrow isn't traveling as fast as a bullet. And where at 100 yards, if an animal goes into motion at the sound of the rifle, the bullet's going to be there before the animal can get its vitals out of the way. But at 30 yards or longer distances with an arrow, um, if that animal jumps the bowstring, the vitals aren't going to be where you thought they were when the arrow gets there. It's just, it's just that, uh, that's, that's just the simple truth. So, you know, granted, you can have some bad luck if, if in fact, the animal goes into motion just as you release the arrow. But assuming you have managed to make your stalk or managed to wait for the animal to come to within your comfortable range without his knowledge of your presence, the element of surprise is tremendously important. For example, at, at 25 yards, I'm not going to take a shot at a deer broadside if that deer is aware of my presence, his head up, and he's looking at me. I won't take that shot. Because I know there's a darn good chance that he'll go into motion as soon as I release the arrow and that, that I'm not likely to put that arrow in the ribcage by the time it arrives. Uh, if, on the other hand, that buck is, is, is feeding with his head down, it's totally unaware of my presence, and I can come to full draw without alerting him, then I'll take that shot because the advantage of surprise gives you an extra half second or so, um, and sometimes a bit more. And uh, then he's likely to still be getting his act together uh, preparatory to clearing out by the time the arrow arrives. Those are the kinds of decisions that affect whether or not you, you feel you've made an ethical shot. But uh, long story short, bottom line is if you don't, if you don't have a, uh, the feeling of confidence that you're you know, 90% sure or better, you can, you can put your arrow through the, the uh, shooting lane that you have without hitting a branch, and getting it to the animal uh, in time to get his job done before the animal clears out, then you, know, you shouldn't take the shot. And if you do feel 90% sure you can do that or better, uh, 100% is best, but there's no such thing <laughs> as guarantee in the hunting world, um, you know, then then go ahead and take the shot. Yeah, when I first started out hunting, I got um, I was unsuccessful for 
I don't know, five or seven years. And a lot of it was I did not pull the trigger because I wasn't 100% confident I was going to hit it in the honey bucket. And now as I'm older and I'm thinking about it, I had a lot of opportunity to harvest animals in my early stages of hunting. But I chose because I knew that I wasn't, you know, there, there's a chance that I was going to miss those vitals or I just wasn't 100% confident in my abilities. Yeah, well, self-confidence has an awful lot to do with it, and the amount you practice has a lot to do with your level of self-confidence. But in the field, it's not the same thing as standing at the target line at an archery range and plunking arrows at a target at, at a known distance of 30 yards or 40 yards or 50 yards. Now, one advantage a compound hunter has, compound bow hunter has, is that if he is taking a 50-yard or 60-yard shot or 70-yard shot with a pin that's set for that distance, and the animal is standing there, even aware of his presence, he's far enough away so the animal's not necessarily going to go into instant flight at the sound of the bowstring. That's the advantage. If you're, if you're 20 or 30 yards or 15 yards or something, that animal, if he's aware of your presence, is likely to be in motion by the time the arrow reaches him because the sound of the bowstring, which may not sound like much if the animal's 70 yards away, at 15 or 20 yards, it's pretty loud to an animal with such good hearing, and he's likely to spook instantly. But at 60 or 70 yards, the animals don't spook as easily. So hmm. that is one thing in favor of the compound bow hunter, not to mention faster arrow flight and a flatter trajectory. But another disadvantage uh, when you weigh pros and cons of your equipment choices are that uh, um, a lot of hunters will, you know, your, sh your shot opportunities, especially at a trophy animal, often don't occur until dusk, you know, until the last possible shooting light when the big bucks and bulls sometimes throw caution to the wind and come out into the open. And uh, if the lighting is poor and you're taking a shot at 50, 60, 70 yards, you're not even going to see where, especially if you're shooting a compound bull with 320 feet per second arrow flight, you're not even going to see that arrow after it leaves the bull. And, and uh, you're not going to know, uh, except for maybe the sound of it, whether or not you hit that animal. And um, if it goes under him or just over, over him or just under him, you're not going to see it. Um, that, that is an argument for using lighted knocks, and a lot of hunters do. I, I don't, but I don't have anything against them. I think uh, that the lighted knock does not give an archer an advantage in being more accurate, but I do think it gives you a big advantage in finding your arrow and in, therefore in, in analyzing the, the sign on the arrow to dis decide on a strategy for, for recovery of the animal. So I'm all in favor of lighted knocks, and I remember one year I was at a biennial Pope and Young convention meeting, uh, uh, meeting of the regular and senior members, and the the issue of lighted knocks came up because at that time Pope and Young did not allow entries taken with lighted knocks. But I found myself in the uh, uh, unusual, surprising position of arguing to allow lighted allowed, allowed lighted knocks uh, taken animals to be entered, even though I knew that if they did pass that change to the bylaws and regulations for Pope and Young that it would knock my world record grizzly out of first place because I knew there was a bigger one that had been taken with a lighted knock a few years after I took mine. And I knew my bear would become number two, but I, I felt it was a matter of principle. And I um, had some people come up to me afterwards in amazement and say, what are you doing arguing to get your own bear thrown out of the book as the world record? And I said, well, <laughs> question what I think is, is right and fair. So, um, there's a lot of pros and cons to every side of most arguments, but uh, uh, I do uh, believe that there's no such thing as the absolutely sure, sh sure shot 
in bow hunting. But I think if you feel the odds are 90%, you can put that arrow where you want to put it, where it needs to go, then you should take the shot. Yeah, and no, I, th- I think what you bring up is really interesting because I'm, cycle- I'm cycling through um, the success I had recently. And, and as you guys are telling your stories and your you, this discussion of like percentages and how you feel, wh- what I thought was really strange was a feeling of confidence that I had in that moment where there was almost no thought at all. I just knew it was... I can't even say that I knew it was going to be happen, but I, I knew it was going to happen. I can't say I knew it was going to be successful, but I can tell you that I had this interesting confidence in the way I reacted to the situation that lent itself to a successful harvest. So where do you even find that balance, Dennis, between just trusting your own instincts and trusting your training or implementing your practice and, and kind of not letting this paralysis by analysis affect you in a negative fashion? I like that phrase, paralysis by analysis, yeah. I didn't didn't invent that, I can tell you for sure. That's pretty good, though. (laughs) I like that. Um, Well, uh, again, you know, that's a a good question. I, as I said, when you're in the field contemplating a possible shot at a quarry animal that you're you're trying to outsmart uh, and get within bull range of, there's so many factors you have to take into account, uh, not just factors like which way is the air moving uh, and are the thermals about to change on me from in the evening to from uphill thermals to downhill thermals. I mean, though that's just one of the uh, many considerations you have to take into account as you plan your strategy. But then the, the unexpected things happen, you know. And, and when it comes time to make that shot, as I say, it's not as if you're at the target line. It's your home archery range. Uh, and uh, lots of hunters who use sights and confide themselves on being able to hit uh, a uh, ping pong ball at 40 yards with their with their sights and and their trigger release, they find that they get buck fever or bull fever or they or something some other factor intervenes to throw them off and they they're embarrassed as hell at the shot they just made and missed the animal clean when they would never have missed it back home at the home target range. So um, it's a combination of experience of how much practicing you do throughout the year with your with your chosen weapon and then. Um, uh, being patient enough to wait for the right opportunity and not force the issue, not force a shot that you don't feel you have that 90% chance or better of making the kind of, of clean, uh, clean, quick killing shot you want to make. So it's it's a balance of all those things, and and uh, nothing serves you better than just patience, waiting for the right situation to develop so that what is at the moment appears to be you know, an almost sure thing. If you have a, if you think it's a chance by being a little patient for a little longer, that your odds may improve on an even better shot, where you do feel uh, fully confident, then take that extra time to move an extra few feet or an extra few yards, uh, or to let that animal come a bit closer to you if you think the odds uh, suggest that that could happen. Um, I think those are all parts of the answer to the question you asked, which is a really good one. Yeah, and so kind of um, shifting gears a little bit, we've got a bunch of great stories, got a good dialogue going on. Let's get into what you got coming up here in this next year, Dennis, and that is to be the first guy to do what? Well, um, 
Rick Dugan of Colorado is one species away from having uh, all 29 of the Pope and Young recognized North American big game species in the Pope and Young records, and he's done all of his hunting all his life with a recurve bow. Uh, Rick was the second archer to take the North American Super Slam without sights, with, it, with purely instinctive shooting. Um, I was the first. But I didn't do it all with just stick bows. I, about half my animals were taken with a compound, albeit uh, I never used anything but three fingers on the string and purely instinctive shooting. But Rick did it all with a recurve. And in the preface to my book, I give credit to Rick Dugan for, for that. Uh, but he lacks only the Alaskan barren ground caribou, as I understand it, to uh, have all 29 species in the Pope and Young records. There are five bow hunters, to my knowledge, maybe six at most, that I can think of. Uh, who have put all 29 species in the Pope and Young records, but they all use compound bows with yardage sight pins, and four of the five uh, that I know of for sure use um, trigger releases. Now, Chuck Adams was the first super slammer, as everybody knows, uh -huh. but Chuck's always used a compound with yardage sight pins, and uh, he does use fingers on the string, but he's always used yardage sight pins. Um, but his super slam it does not have all 29 species in the polar book. I know for sure his his polar bear is not in the in the uh, in the I meant to say Pope and Young record book. Um, and he swore he'd never hunt polar bear again. The, the, the cold conditions up there were more than he enjoyed, and he swore he'd never go back. Uh, so he's not one of those five. But so far, nobody's ever put all 29 species in the Pope and Young records with purely instinctive shooting. I'd love to become the first, but if I'm the second, I'll be almost. <laughs> <laughs> and I just hope I can get it done before old age knocks me out of the arena into a grave or a wheelchair. I just turned 79 earlier this month, and uh, the thought that terrifies me more than any other is that in less than 12 months I'll turn 80, and that thought really scares the heck out of me. Um, <laughs> it's funny how that age goes up as you keep making trips around the sun, ain't it? Like we, there, there's yeah. so so sure. with you, Dennis. What what critter what critters keeping you out? Did I, did I miss well, that portion of it? Two. There are two. When I finished okay. up the Super Slam in the fall of '04 and started writing my book, which took me four years, averaging 12 hours a day to write it, 360,000 words, um, I counted up those species that didn't measure up to trophy young quality, and there were 12 that did not, 17 that did. So I thought, okay, I'm too old to start hunting Africa with a bow. I was already retirement age, um, <laughs> like so many of my friends who had gotten hooked on hunting big game in Africa. I said, I'm just going to go back and, and try and upgrade those North American species that I had fallen in love with, hunting all 29 of them over my lifetime, and see if I can't uh, can't upgrade the remaining 12 to Pope and Young quality. Well, I've hunted all 12 of those uh, at least once in the last uh, uh, 14 years since I finished the Super Slam in 04, and I've knocked 10 of them off that list. Um, that included all three elk that needed to be upgraded. And that included uh, uh, three of the four caribou I needed to upgrade, but the Alaskan barren ground caribou is still one I need to upgrade. And the other one is the bison. Now, you can't hunt bison very many places. Um, um, there are five states that allow uh, that have a lottery draw. If you're a non-resident, your chances are only 10 percent. Uh, um, only 10 percent of the tags are allowed for for non-residents. Uh, in most of those states, but your odds are 500 to 1 being drawn. You can book a hunt in northern B.C. for bison, but the, only the two outfitters that are able to guide you on a bison hunt up there, they're booked about three years in advance. And I just 
finished hunting bison uh, unsuccessfully last October up in northern BC, although I passed up about a six-year-old bull that I could have slam dunked for about 16 yards. I knew he wasn't old enough and mature enough to have horns that would make Pope and Young, so I never considered shooting mm. at him. And I never saw an older bull to have a chance at during that hunt. Um, and uh, given my age, I doubt that I, you know, I may not be around, or at least not in good enough health to hunt by the time I'm 82 or 3. So I decided I had to really bite the bull by the horns, and I took out a loan, and I bid on the Arizona governor's tag uh, recently, uh, about a month ago, uh, the Arizona uh, governor's bison tag. And the neat thing about that tag, which I was able to win at an auction, uh, you know, and it, it cost me an arm and a leg, certainly more money than I've ever spent before on any hunt, but um, it comes with a 364-day season. I can hunt for a whole year. That season opens August 15th. And whether I'm hunting by myself down there or hunting with a guide, uh, outfitter, whatever, um, uh, I can hunt till I find the right animal in the right circumstances where I feel comfortable making a killing shot and, and get the job done. And I'm sure with a, uh, that much time, I'm not that I'm going to hunt for a year, but I'm, gonna, <laughs> I'm planning to hunt five days in, in August, another 10 in September, if that doesn't get the job done. Then I have the whole month of July. I'd be the only hunter in the field. Uh, a lot of the bison come out of Grand Canyon National Park where they spend much of the year. And you can't hunt them in the park, only on the outside the park. Hmm. So uh, in August, September, I'll be hunting uh, just outside the park. And there's some water holes they come to and some salt licks and whatnot that they visit. And uh, I'll probably uh, be hiding somewhere in a little stand of timber or in a ground blind or something, uh, maybe even a tree stand, depending on the circumstances, uh, one of those places. But if I can't get the job done... Uh, in August, September, when there are other hunters who've drawn tags on the state lottery draw in Arizona out there pursuing them also, I can come back in July and hunt the whole month of July and have it all to myself. And, and so I would hope to get the job done then. And if I can manage to get that caribou I'll be hunting in late August and early September this year up in Alaska, then and get the bison this year or next, then I would have all 29 species uh, of and Young Records. Well, unbelievable, Dennis. Um, uh, Jeremy, I have to say this is um, this has been this has been a great hour. I can tell you, when I was playing football in college, some of my favorite times were spent talking to uh, Al Thomas. Uh, Al Thomas was an old high school football coach, and he had he would always tell us. He said, "Fellers, I have forgotten more about football than you'll ever know." He wasn't afraid to tell us that, and um, I used to love just sitting by sitting sitting with him before meetings and just talking about what football was like when he was a kid and hearing his stories and and all those things and um for a moment Dennis you took me back there it was great for you to um uh for you to lend your experience to our podcast um uh my great pleasure it was a blessing man I appreciate it man seriously well, I very much enjoyed the hour. Has it, it already been an hour? No, I was going to say. I was going to say it's it's been a great hour, and you know, it, it only it only makes me it only makes me want to schedule the next one before we let you leave this um before we let you leave <laughs> okay. this cast. But, but what we'll do here, Dennis, is um I want to give you a chance to just um let our audience if if they were as intrigued as I was to follow up and maybe ask another personal question or shoot you an email. I know you have your barebows.com website where where folks can get your book, they can uh, visit your meet the author page and and actually I would say anyone go check it out. I mean, there are some stunning photos of some of the animals we've been discussing on this podcast there. And um, there's... Wait, if, 
Say that again. Could I take another few seconds and, and explain something else that's really important about that book? Oh, no, please. Absolutely. This is, I was going to say, this is your chance. Please, if there's anything with a final thought okay. you'd like to give our audience, please do that. Well, um, as I indicated earlier, there are no photographs of me and dead animals in the book for a reason. But I wanted to replace that. Uh, you know, it's the exact antithesis of, of Chuck Adams' book, where he has photographs of himself and every dead animal of his, of, for every one of the species in his Super Slam book. But um, I wanted uh, something really special about the book with regard to the wild animals themselves, which we hunters uh, have such reverence for. So I invited two artists, a father and a son from Pocatello, Idaho, the father named Hayden Lampson, his son named Dallin. Both have sold their artwork to Cabela's and Bass Pro Shop for years. They illustrated the book for me for no compensation whatsoever. Hayden Lampson painted for almost two years, nearly full time, without a penny's worth of compensation. Mm. And then two years ago, after the book came out in 08, two years ago, I decided I wanted out of the book business. I was tired of, of working full time for eight years there to, to, uh, to sell the book. I had 5,000 copies of this 10-pound coffee table book printed, and I had uh, about 9% of them unsold, and I gifted all the remaining unsold copies to the two artists. Uh, so now when people order a copy of that book over the book's website, which is barebows.com, B-A-R-E-B-O-W-S.com, uh, all the money goes to the artist. They get the order in their inbox, they fill it, they do the shipping, and, and the buyer sends a check made out to to um, Hayden Lamson or to Dallin Lamson. Unbelievable. And, uh, that's, that's only fair because the two of them donated their artwork gratis to the project uh, over 10 years ago when the book came out in 08. Awesome. And so I can tell you I've been reading the book, and it is worth every penny. As a matter of fact, my wife ended up, we didn't have um, a coffee table, and I got this book, and now we have a coffee table. <laughs> Oh, and, and Dennis, I sent you the picture because I was like, she bought this coffee table. It, it's it's planted a seed. She's always wanted to get one, and then I buy a book, and then she buys that that uh, I, coffee I love, table. I love seeing that picture you sent me. I got the biggest kick out of that. But you know, my publisher used to tease me. He was my closest male friend, and so I was so lucky to have him uh, be able to publish the book for me because I knew I could get from through him the book that I really wanted without having to make major compromises or sacrifices since I was paying for the whole thing. No publisher would have taken the, the, the gamble with that high-end book uh, being such a niche kind of audience for it, you know. Uh, um, uh, Safari Press wanted to publish the book, but they wanted me to put up all the money for it, and nobody was going to take a risk with it. So I had to I had to borrow against the equity in my home big time in order to uh, to get that book published. It cost me just... One thousand bucks shy of three hundred grand to publish that book, mm. and I borrowed an awful, a lot of that against the equity in my home. So if you want proof I'm married to an angel, that's it. Mm. You didn't divorce. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if your wife says the same thing mine do when I take on any new project like that. She goes, "Whatever makes you happy," you know. I mean, so, uh, so well, so, I, I have the most supportive wife a guy could ever yeah, be blessed it. with, and I, I am the luckiest man I have ever met in my life. I have to tell you that. Well, that's, uh, awesome. that's um, that's wonderful. And um, you know, I gotta say, you brought up your age a moment ago, and, and you happily married. You know, you seem to be still plugging away. That you know, there, I I see lots of folks who they they approach your years and they kind of they they slow down. Just based off the conversation and your goals that you still have. I mean, what's the key to keeping pace as you increase well, in age? Key, 
The main key is to keeping in shape physically. I mean, if I didn't work out three or four days a week on a regular basis, mm. uh, both uh, with cardiovascular exercise on a Stairmaster or a treadmill or a Strider, one of those three, um, and also uh, do uh, training with weights and, and balancing and stuff, uh, if I didn't work at that, I wouldn't be hunting in the field any longer. Uh, you know, I'm hoping I, I mean, if and when I take these two remaining species, I will have one more remaining hunting goal, and that is to be able to hunt through my 80s and actually take a, a, a legal big game animal with my bow and arrow at age 90 or better. If I can do that, um, I'll go to a very happy man. <laughs> I will anyway, but that would be the frosting on the cake. Well, I'll tell you what, in, in, in I'm trying to do the math, in, uh, in 50... In 53 years, I'll, I'll be hoping to make the same goal. And I think anyone listening to this podcast uh, would, would, would count themselves lucky if they're able to do it as long as you have, Dennis. It's, um, I wish you all the luck in the world. I hope we can, uh, hope we can stay in touch as you pursue this. And, in fact, uh, I'm going to put you on the spot. When you do uh, complete this task, uh, can, can we be the first podcast you come on to talk about that? Okay, we got it. As a, as a, I'm going right. to hold you to that as a Christian now. I'm going to hold you to that, sir. Where is my bond? <laughs> I, Jeremy, you, you mentioned the photographs in the book. I, I, I should tell your listeners that in the back of the book, because I did not want them to c- compete with the artwork, uh, the colored artwork scattered throughout the book that introduces each of the 29 chapters with a, a color plate of that species in its natural habitat, I placed 60 color photographs of my own in the back of the book called A Hunter's Photo Collection. And they're all pictures of wildlife alive on the hoof or paw and stunning wilderness landscapes, the best of the best I've taken with my own cameras over my hunting lifetime. And each photo is captioned. And at the end of the caption underneath the photo is an alphanumeric reverence to the chapter story and page number where the photo is relevant to the story. And that Hunter's photo collection is pretty special. There's some amazing pictures in there, which you made reference to. Is there? Yeah, a- and I agree. I mean, I'm... I'm looking at the pictures right now, and they are phenomenal. And, they, uh, and what's neat is how they take you back a little bit, too, on the gear that you used several years ago compared to the gear that guys are using now, the ultra-lightweight this and ultra-lightweight that and that and this. And uh, you're out there doing backcountry stuff, I mean, far before it even got popular. Well, just so you know what I'm going to be hunting with this uh, summer and fall, I shoot a— um a 60-inch uh, long um, uh, whitetail hawk recurve made by Steve Gore of Cascade Archery in northwestern Washington. And I shoot wooden arrows, uh, cedar or fir arrows made for me by Suzanne St. Charles. She does the fletching and the cresting, and there, she's uh, the, the daughter, one of two daughters that, of Glenn St. Charles, whom I knew personally, uh, grew up in his backyard uh, in the Seattle area. And I'll be using a broadhead. It's, uh, it's a two-bladed broadhead, single bevel. And for caribou, I use a 225-grain head uh, with my arrows um, weighing about 760 grains. But when I hunt bison in the fall, I'm going to use the same head. It's called the tough head, T-U-F-F-H-E-A-D. The tough head is also two-blade, single bevel, stainless steel. Um, but uh, for bison, I'm, I'm going to use the heaviest of the three weights that, that uh, Vintage Archery makes those tough heads with, and that's a 300-grain arrow. And my, 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 uh, my uh, arrows, counting the broadhead, are going to weigh about 825 grains. I'm shooting at my draw, I'm shooting 60 pounds uh, on my recurve. Uh, it's right in between 59.5 and 60 pounds at my draw, and 
hopefully uh, for another couple of years my shoulders can still handle that. But I've had several bows made, both uh, long bows and recurves made for myself that are in the 51, 52-pound range at my draw. And I would expect once I accomplish this final goal uh, and take that bison, uh, if I'm so lucky, then I will start shooting a lighter bow from then on and hope maybe be able even to hunt into my 90s. That's my dream anyway. Well, I, I think you're going to get it, sir. Well, our <laughs> prayers are going to be with you. Oh, go ahead, Joe. No, I was going to say it's I the same for setup. this opportunity. Part of your your podcast, and uh, you got my guarantee that if I get those final two animals, uh, we'll do the first podcast. I'll do it with you guys. Oh, we'll fire it up. Well, I'm also, you know, us all being in Washington, it'd be great to uh, to sort out an opportunity to even cross paths. So uh, keep us keep us posted on your travels, Dennis. Um, uh, like I said, you uh, know, I'm not in Washington anymore. My home is Sun Valley, Idaho. Oh, do you do you come up to Washington yet? Still or not off. I have a son and two grandkids that live there, but they usually come over to Idaho because they love that area so much. Well, I'm trying um, to convince the wife to go out to Idaho. I want to check it out before I decide to move us well, there. So we might have to do that. Valley. We, we we might do it. Um, uh, she um, if, as long as there's a comfortable comfortable place to sit for her and and the kids can run around, that might be a, a fine thing to do. So we'll we'll have to work that out, Dennis. So um, thank you for the invite. All right, you're welcome. You take care, and uh, Joe, nice meeting you. Yes, sir. Uh, Jeremy, any 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 closing thoughts here? As you want to do, you want to last action or excuse me, uh, review this? Or you, you're kind of instead of doing a, a last action review, do you want to your your closing thought on on what you picked up from Dennis this afternoon? Well, you know, there's so much good stuff in there, and then it, and uh, the listeners, I think, are going to enjoy all the great stories and everything. But I think more than anything, that everybody just kind of praise and hopes for Dennis to um, conquer his feet and get those two lost animals here within this this year. And, um, yeah, my prayers are definitely with you on that. There it is. And I'll tell you what, Dennis, my closing thought, if there was anything I wasn't expecting you to say, it was to ask me if I've ever seen two porking pines making love. In fact, no one's... <laughs> <laughs> in fact no one's ever asked me that question sir and i'm rarely surprised anymore so thank you uh for keeping things interesting <laughs> well i've asked a lot of other hunters who spent their lifetime out in the, the woods and the hills in their free time honey if they've ever run into that and i've yet to meet another person who's ever seen it well there it is there there's the challenge audience have you seen two porcupines making love i'll tell you this though dennis i might not have seen them making love but i know a guy in portland who as a kid used to eat them a lot, and he does not recommend them. So uh, there we go, folks. Right. So uh, so let us know if you seem to. I want you to close with this thought, parting image in your mind. Just conjure this up in your Let's mind. Let's do it. <laughs> okay. My buddy and I were late leaving this high mountain lake in the North Cascades. We were hoofing it and trying to beat it down to a couple thousand vertical feet down this mountain ridge to get to our truck before dark. We didn't make it. We ended up having to, even after our flashlights burned out, we were going down through a, a, a burnt... Uh, blow down where everything had caught uh, caught fire and everything was charred black and we were tumbling head over heels halfway down the mountain. I must have fallen 20 times in the dark because I couldn't see a damn thing. Mm. But before the, we ran out of light, the sun was just perched on this ridge uh, right in front of us. And we were on this al uh, alpine bench just uh, just below the alpine, subalpine still. And, and we're looking ahead the way we're headed towards that ridge. The sun's about to disappear behind and we see this golden orb of light about, oh, 70 or 80 yards up in front of us and it's it's this it looks like a christmas tree ornament with an electric bulb inside mm. and i i can't believe my eyes because it's so out of place it's so unnatural I, I cannot imagine what it is and i i turn to my buddy and ask i say dale 
what in the world is that up there? Have you ever seen anything like that in your life? And he said, I can't, I can't imagine. So I took my pack off, got out my binoculars, and here on top of a log, a fallen log, is one porcupine on top of the other. <laughs> Their quills are all thrust out into open air, backlit by the sun, and this was a pulsating glob of light because those quills were hollow, and it, it made the whole thing light up like there was a, 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 an electric bulb inside. Mm. How uh, wild. I love it. So so Moses in the burning bush and then Dennis in the lovemaking porcupines. I love it. So. Hey, that's a great analogy. Never thought of that. <laughs> yeah, there it is. Well, hey, so so the, well, I can't think of a, of a better way to sign off, guys. So please, if well, you... We'll leave you all, your listeners on that facetious <laughs> note, and thanks again, guys. It was a great pleasure. Thank yeah, you, thank Dennis. You, Dennis. Have a great one, Bye-bye. folks. Bye-bye. <laughs> awesome. Excellent chat with a hunting legend, Dennis Dunn. Um, hopefully we have him on soon where he can discuss, cross, cross, cross those fingers, discuss how he um, sealed the deal on his big, big task in getting that bison in um, in Arizona. I'm wishing him all the luck. Um, if you want to learn more about Dennis, go over to barebows.com. That is B-A-R-E-B-O-W-S dot Com. Actually, I'm on that page right now, and Dennis, um, Harvard graduate, uh, cum laude, no doubt, in 1962, and has a master's degree um, in Romance, Languages, and Literature, right? Um, awesome guy. Um, hopefully, when I'm 84, hopefully, when you're 84, you're still getting after it, and this show is part of helping you achieve that goal. Um as always, guys, please, as we close the show out, think about our show partners, uh, SendAvet Foundation. Check them out at send-a-vet.org. And then also, guys, PR Lifting at prlifting.com. Um, check out both those websites. Let them know that Backcountry and Barbell sent you. Um, you can support PR Lifting by buying their gear, and you can um, support the SendAvet Foundation however you however you can um, with your volunteer hours, with your donations, and um, by letting them know who needs their help um lastly guys you can really help the show by checking out our website backcountryandbarbells.com um by also reviewing the show and um trying out our programs letting us know what you're thinking just reach out to us on um, my instagram page um the backcountry and barbells instagram page or jeremy's um instagram page so check that out guys and uh have you guys an awesome day and remember train hunt and live thank you very much